You're listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation, as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency critique Encounter narrative. Today's discussion is with Diva Woodley, who teaches in the Department of Politics at the New School for Social Research in New York City, where she also directs the Mellon Initiative for Inclusive Faculty Excellence. Diva has published widely on democratic theory and practice, focusing on the function of public meaning formation and its effects on self and collective understanding of the polity, employing multiple methods to understand the power of discourse in shaping democratic life. She is the author of The Politics of Common Sense, How Social Movements Use Public Discourse to Change Politics and Win Acceptance, published in 2015 by Oxford University Press, as well as Reckoning, Black Lives Matter and the Democratic Necessity of Social Movements, also published by Oxford University Press in late 2021, and is the occasion for our conversation today. Diva, welcome. It's so great to have you here. I really appreciate you making the time to talk about your book today. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here to get to have a conversation with you. Well, I did want to just start off saying, um, you know, I was excited. I knew this book was coming out and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a pre-order person, put in my pre-order and um, I had really high hopes for the book because I think it's such an urgent topic. It's extremely important. And I have to say, it really exceeded those hopes. I think it's 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 both really well written. It's written with a such a deep uh, moral core uh, that I think all the invocations that you want out of the book, all the imperatives you want out of the book, really hit both because of your writing and because of your analysis. So I just wanted to start off saying that it's it's uh, one of the most interesting and energizing books I've read in a really really long time. That is so amazing to ha- hear you say. I, um, I'm so happy that it comes through. This book was actually quite difficult for me to write um, because it went against um, my sort of investment in it and the way that I want that wanted that investment to come through um, was a little bit counter to my training as a huh. you know an empirical political scientist, um, you know, which is supposed to be. Um, a little bit more sort of guarded and, um, um, uh, you know, uh, cleansed of, <laughs> of, yeah. of emotional content in favor of rigor, right? And so I wanted to make sure that um, it was both rigorous, but there was also a really strong um, indication of intentionality and position and, um um, you know, ethical commitment as well, right? I, I did want it to have the tone of an appeal, right? Um, so, but I felt it was kind of dangerous um, to do that. Uh, and so I had to wrestle with myself a little bit in order to um, try to make it work. So I'm glad that it came through. It absolutely did. I mean, it doesn't, uh, it's, actually surprises me to hear that you know the behind the scenes part of writing (laughs) being a writer is always its own uh its own kind of drama and but that certainly doesn't come across that that sort of hesitation or or or, you know 
whatever, however you want to characterize it. It, I think it's really boldly put and argued. Um, and I, those, those, mor- those moral, ethical, political injunctions are, are just so clear. And it's a very uh, readable book without uh, moving uh, outside of its complexity. I mean, I think it's a, a really great balance between the complexity of the, the issues you examine and, um, you know, the clear desire to connect in ways that aren't simply around abstract right, political uh, concepts and so forth. And, you know, but you, you know, it's interesting to hear you say that about your own sort of, uh, you know, your own recalibration as, as a, a writer. And so maybe just, I want to start with a question along those lines, which mm-hmm. is, you know, why this project, why this project now and why in the way that you wrote it, and I say that because, as we all know, when you write a book, it's a full existential commitment, right? Everything gets set aside so that you can do this. And mm-hmm. so much is at stake professionally, personally, spiritually, emotionally, energy. Um, so something motivates us to write these books, right? Something really pulls us. Uh, and what is it that drew you to this project, to write it and to write it now and to write it in the way that you did? Well, you know, this was an accidental book project. Um, It's my second book, and I had already had a second book project planned that is separate from this one um, and will now be my third book project, um, a project on economic discourse that very much sort of follows the format um, methodologically of my first book, um, uh, which is a a mixture of... um, political theoretic methods, qualitative and quantitative methods. And so I was going to, you know, build a discourse database and do interviews all over the country and sort of ground it all in kind of Aristotelian theories of eudaimonia and flourishing. Um, And it was going to be um, very, very sort of hard to do, but very neat and tidy in terms of um, um, my relationship to it. I understood how to deal with that data. But during the time that I was... Um, you know, researching that book and building my data sets, um, you know, that was um, 2013, 2014. Mm -hmm. And that was the moment of birth of uh, a new Black liberation movement. And as a social movement scholar, um, and as a Black woman, um, I just couldn't look away, um, uh, literally, from the proliferation of horrifying videos that were um, online, but then also the discourse of people who were actually um, in and creating movement spaces um, uh, at that time. And, you know, I still wasn't, I didn't immediately pivot um, to writing about the Black Lives Matter movement um, at that time. What actually made me start writing about it was that I thought that people kept missing the complexity of what was going on um, Mm -hmm. and that the sort of pieces that I was reading about the social movement, especially the short pieces and popular media pieces, um, were getting a lot of things um, 
either wrong or assessing them in a really shallow and short-term way that didn't reflect what I saw emerging as the really different approach um, mm-hmm. that this was, movement was taking as a social movement, the kind of awareness uh, the movement had of the importance of meaning-making, um, the kind of um, grounding of their revolutionary, I think, um, or at least radical claims, um, which I think... Um, was really different than 20th century movements that we might think of as radical. So I just felt like the kind of work coming out assessing um, the movement at that time, you know, in 2014, 15, 16, wasn't getting at some of the stuff that I thought was most um, uh, important, influential, and innovative about what folks were doing. And I also wanted to do a project that considered not only the movement as a social movement, but the place of social movements in democracy, because I thought something interesting was also going on in terms of, um, um, you know, democracy itself and what the social movement seemed to be doing. The moment that I, there are two moments where I understood myself to be actually writing a book. So as as I started noticing these things, I started writing like short pieces um, that were about small observations, right? Like, so observations about leadership, observations about um, discourse, right? And the injection of, of things like self-care into our popular discourse and the political implications of that. So I started writing short pieces and I would do little talks on these short pieces and um and at one of the talks um on the short pieces uh, someone was asking me um oh well this is like very interesting what you're saying about what social movements do in democracy um when is the book coming out and i said i'm not writing a i don't i don't know <laughs> And that was sort of like a moment of realization for me when I was like, oh, I guess I am writing a book. Um, And the thing that had kind of accelerated my production of these shorter pieces was that in the summer of 2016, so before the election, um, in August, a poll from the Pew Research Center came out um, that um, had public approval uh, ratings for a variety of different things. And something that was very, very strange and unusual is that the Black Lives Matter movement was polling in approval ahead of both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. Um, and and I just thought that was unprecedented. I mean, it is unprecedented, right? So, yeah, sure. um, uh, and you know, the movement polls it about that. And, and this was like, it was a small difference. It was like, um, you know, um, Donald Trump was polling at like 46% approval and Hillary Clinton was polling at 45% approval and movement was polling at 48% approval or something like that. So it was a small difference and within um, the, the, um, the margin of error, but at, but still social movements don't pull like that, especially when they're kind of like fresh out the gate. Like, you know, this was 2016. um, So probably three or four years into the life of the movement. And it had been a very kind of tumultuous start. Right. (laughs) Um, um, And, um, and so I just was like, I have to, I have to think this through in a very systematic way. I I really like that, that the, or, you know, realizing you're uh, writing a book when somebody asks you what your book is about. (laughs) Yeah. That's kind of a. <laughs> that's exactly what happened. <laughs> that's actually a phenomenal moment, you know, and um, 
it's both uh, it both makes me laugh i have you know i can actually think of a couple of occasions where i had similar origins myself um but it also i mean it does speak to the value of of intellectual community you know often we give talks and we you know we can be virtuous and say i want feedback or i want to just you know share my ideas um, and sometimes that's true, and sometimes that's you know how we justify our sociality as as academics. But there is that very real dimension of people seeing something in 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 what you're saying that you know we don't necessarily see for ourselves. So I, I like that as a as a as a way of reminding me at least of uh, the importance of these these uh, intellectual communities, right? Just Absolutely. getting that sort of feedback because people do always see, you know, whether it's a friend, a partner or a colleague, see something about us we don't see. And, and this Absolutely. is a particularly productive one. Those are usually negative things they know <laughs> about us. But, you know, I like this is, is a much uh, happier one. <laughs> well, so it's interesting. So you're talking about the sort of origins of this project in 1516, the sort of emergence of, of, of the Black Lives Matter movement, the movement for black lives. Um, but the I want to ask you about the title and the subtitle, but especially the title, which itself is, is, is very much evocative of the past year and a half, Mm -hmm. right? Reckoning. So I wanted to ask you, what do you think this word reckoning does uh, as a title? It was of course, for at least some elements of, of, of our national media was a way of talking about the. Uh, protests after the uh, murder of uh, Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, of course, people started talking about national reckoning. Mm-hmm. So it evokes that, but in that, and in that way evokes uh, a very recent uh, iteration of, of protest and uprising. But then there's also in the subtitle, this phrase democratic necessity, which as you've already spoken to, you know, that this is the idea of democracy in relation to this movement and to movements in general is, is essential for your thinking generally and, and in this book in particular. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering two things, you know, why this word reckoning you know, what, what, what drew you to that word to make it a title? That's an important decision we make. And also democratic necessity, you know, what motivates your work to connect Black Lives Matter movement for Black Lives to thinking about democracy and, and democratic action and process more broadly? Okay, so thank you for this question. And it's actually, um, I think, really important in terms of thinking through what I think that the work is, uh, both the work of this book, uh, but also the political work of this moment. Um, so the word reckoning, when it comes to words, I, I love um, I, I love their actual definitional meanings and their origins, right? I think that that tells us um, a lot um, about, um, yes, about about sort of, um, you know, the differences between or the divergence and overlap between denotation and connotation and how they have sort of evolved and developed over time. So reckoning is the action or process of calculating or estimating something, right? It's impact. And archaically, right, it, it is literally a bill or account and it's settlement. Um, so I didn't know that. Right. Um, but then in sort of more, um, 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 you know, 19th century uses, reckoning is about memory, right? Um, it is about um, um, uh, 
yeah, it's about like what you remember and what you think about what you remember. So the memory and the analysis are together, right? When in the sort of casual uses, do you reckon, right? Which is a kind of, so I love the polysemy of the word reckoning because Mm -hmm. I felt like that reflected the process, right? The political process that was going on. Um, And it also reflected the kind of contingency of that process uh, in a way that I really wanted to take seriously um, because this to reckon, right, is, is a process. It's not actually the final um, uh, account, right? It is the, the process yeah. of going through, trying to figure out um, the meaning and significance of what has occurred um, and figuring out how we are going to um, remember and analyze the things that are taking place and what they mean for us. So uh, I felt like that was actually what was going on and what movement was pushing um, the American polity and indeed the global polity to do is to try to make sense of this state-sanctioned, um, um, you know, murder, harassment, and theft um, from Black people in a different in a different way, right? In a different mm-hmm. light um, to rethink, recalculate, um, um, uh, remember right, (laughs) in a different way Mm -hmm. um, than had been usual um, at that time, and to encourage um, reimaginings, right, of what might be possible, um, you know, in future, um, but also reimagine what might be necessary in the present. So I thought all of that was sort of contained in the notion of reckoning. And then in terms of the subtitle was the original title of the whole manuscript. Like the whole time I was working on the manuscript, it was called Black Lives Matter and the Democratic Necessity of Social Movements. So that was a constant from the very beginning because Mm -hmm. um, what I understand about social movements and what seemed to me to be made very clear in the case of Black Lives Matter or the Black Lives Matter movement is that um, we often think about social movements as um, disruptions of a kind of normal order of democratic politics, but they're integral to democratic politics and indeed democratic politics can't exist without social movements. Um, And that's because institutions, no matter how virtuously designed, become self-serving rather than mission-serving over time. They just do. Um, And so... Um, social movements are the things that allow democracies to remain democratic um, and to not sort of contract into completely non-responsive oligarchy, which mm-hmm. is the tendency of all institutions. Yeah, I love the I love both those answers. Uh, um, you know, and at the to the subtitle this this democratic necessity as you just articulated it. Um, that's such a deep impactful part of the book, right? And, and there are lots of aspects of the book that I think um, leave a deep impression. And that that's one that really left a deep impression for me. It's one of those things that I think I intuitively mm-hmm. connected. But, you know, once you start to talk about the decadence that comes from institutions left to themselves, mm-hmm. right? Uncontested and so forth. Um, you know, that, and, you know, putting that word necessity after democratic is um just so important in the way you articulated it uh 
uh, you know, for people who haven't read the book, I mean, when you read the book, it's like you really feel it, right? mm. but it's conceptually and uh, strategically such an important thing to see. I mean, I wish we could just say as a nation, we need more protest, mm. right? To keep our democracy vital. Um, obviously, that's our slippage out of democracy in the way we have to always remind uh, institutions uh, of their own vitality. Um, but I know that, that, you know, you're, your embrace of the the multiple resonances but also sort of coalescing multiple resonances of this word reckoning is just to me is so interesting and important and it's a way of saying you know and i want to ask about it because the word existed in you know certain elements of national media as a way of talking about that moment mm -hmm. but your use of it in the the book and as a title and in the book is not as you just articulated, it's not to sort of, it's not a sort of title version of clickbait, you know, no. we talked about that, but instead really gets inside the term. And I have to say, just in case any student happened to listen to this, this is why I say when they're writing papers or theses, I always say, take your key terms and go get the Oxford English Dictionary. Yes. Learn the history of these words because so it will open up horizons you hadn't expected. You end it's up saying more than you meant in a really great way. It is so enlightening and so clarifying for one's thinking, um, I think. And, you know, it's also important that the, you know, the use of reckoning in this way is not a monument to a moment. Instead, it's the name of a process, right? Um, and a process that is ongoing and has to be, because that's the other thing is that this book is rooted in a sort of theoretically pragmatic you know, philosophically pragmatic place, um, which privileges iteration, right? Mm -hmm. um, which understands democratic process to always be ongoing and that the process is what is um, sacred and beneficial to humanity and polities, um, not um, any institutions that we might design because over time institutions have to be built and dismantled based on their usefulness, right? If you're a, if you're a pragmatist, right? Like, so um, if a thing doesn't work anymore, um, according to the values and meanings of, um, you know, agreed upon in a polity, mm -hmm. then you have to change it. Um, and, and that's mm -hmm. not a disaster. And it's, you know, um, it's just a part of what actual democratic process is. If we are um, living um, and vital human beings who are responding to conditions both inside of the societies that we create, but also exogenous um, conditions of environment, mm -hmm. material resources, mm -hmm. etc. You have to change over time. That's our gift, and it's one that we, sh as human beings, and it's one that we should um, accept um, with intention, rather than uh, sort of trying to build, um, you know build um monuments that never change um and yeah. and and decide declare them sacred um um in a way that precludes their revision um or putting them away you know so 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 that's so i also wanted to sort of highlight the process act um, aspect of it um and the livingness of this um, also of, of, of the democratic process, um, you know, because I think that that is um, 
writing against a lot of um, the sort of democratic theory scholarship um, of the 20th century, (laughs) which Uh was really, really interested in finding um, the kind of equilibrium, the best equilibrium points or the ideal points at which um, everything could be balanced forever and ever. Amen. And, um, and that's not realistic and it's um, harmful and it, it it's harmful because it makes it so that it's very difficult to respond to conditions in in the moment, um, and it's really hard to make revisions and admit mistakes, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so, uh, yeah. So I just wanted to emphasize, hey, folks, we're actually all in this together, and it's really important to understand um, the process of it all. I really like the way you put that. I mean. I think this, in principle, it's it's important, but it also is really embodied in the kind of writing you do in the book. Thank you. I mean, I I, I tried. I, I mean, it, you make me sound much more like um, strategic than I than it felt. Um, you know, I think that I was trying to convey everything that I learned um, from the movement in the process. That's the other thing that's really important to say is that like, I did not, um, I did not know what would be required um, to write this book or even the form that it would take. um, Because at first I thought that I was going to write a little, a little book, you know, like a little brief on my theory about social movements and democratic necessity using like a very small, like a kind of um, description of, um, focusing actually on the organizational form of the Black Lives Matter movement, which I thought was really different and impactful and would like make a splash in, in terms of social movement studies. And I was just going to do this little book about this. Um, but my work is almost always inductive. And it is always inductive and empirical. Oh, so, uh-huh. um, so I was like, well, I can't write this without talking to people. And as I started the interview process, I started to notice that people kept telling me the same kinds of, kept articulating a very consistent list of values um, and kind of um, also like interpretive processes from different organizations at different levels in the organizations, both when I was talking to them in kind of formal, long, unstructured interviews and when I just happened to be like run into them or be in virtual spaces with them where I had a short moment to talk to them. Like in each one of these, people kept articulating very similar things. And I was just like, there's actually a whole political philosophy here. Um, And I don't feel like I can actually write this book without um, trying to understand and to codify what I think that this political philosophy is because it's consistent, right? It's consistent across organizations and different regions. um, And it's something that folks have developed by talking to each other. And it's a kind of baseline that people seem to agree on and, Furthermore, it undergirds, right? It gives um, the the reasoning for the organizational form that I want to talk about, right? Because the organizational form makes sense because of these values. Um, so it ended up being a bigger bigger book than I expected. Um, and you know, as I learned about the political philosophy, I was also just moved by it. Like I just, I was just moved, and I wanted to um, convey what I thought was what I think is the um, incredibly 
useful gift of this 21st century philosophy, which is an amalgam, um, you know, of of previous philosophies, right, that have mm-hmm. existed, um, but with innovations that make it relevant for these times, um, because of the lessons that we have learned about many of the 20th century philosophies and their detriments, um, and the 20th century organizational forms, right, for social movements and their detriments. So, um, so yeah, so 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 that's what I mean by this book was difficult to write is that as I was writing it, I was trying to figure out how I could convey what I saw as the complexity and depth of what was going on and its relevance to, um, you know, other parts of the discipline. And that's part of, I think what makes this book a little strange, um, you know, and, and, uh, for people to sometimes for people to sort of deal with and encounter is that um, is that I'm trying to convey the radicalism of the movement, um, but also put it in conversation with um, you know conventional social movements and political theory discourses, mm-hmm. but in a way that doesn't privilege those discourses. Um, but makes them a part of a conversation. And it's a, it's a tricky thing to do. In, it makes them a part of a conversation because um, I do believe that knowledge production is always a conversation. I don't think that you yeah. can kind of supersede what has come before in a, uh, in a way that kind of can dismiss or ignore. Um, uh, and, and you can't, and this is a, you know, different people feel differently about this, but I also don't feel like you can ignore dominant discourses um, um, if if what you're trying to do is to move beyond them. I think that yeah. you have to deal with them in some way. Um, so, um, yeah, so that's kind of what, what I was wrestling with is like how to do all of those things um, without, as much as I can, without reifying um discourses that actually don't describe what the movement is doing, which I think is new. And I think what you say about knowledge production being uh, conversation, collaboration, is also true about writing. You know, when you said, you know, I wasn't sort of, you know, you, you know, I was making it sound intentional. What I think is interesting is what often gets called, you know, I'm a theorist, a pure theorist. And so, you know, my field is often accused of being jargony and that sort of thing. But I always say, you know, that's part of writing is a sense of immersion mm-hmm. and your sensibilities are changed by your immersion in what you're writing about. And so you end up, it's not mimicry. It's really a sensibility that emerges out of that, 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 uh, that conversation, whether they're with texts or in your case with, with activists. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, in the streets, you know, re- reflecting on, or even just speaking in the moment to their work, mm-hmm. and so I, I think our writerly sensibilities come out of of those conversations in the same way that, as you say, knowledge production does. You know, the content and the depth on the page, right, and the words and the phrasing and and the the sound of what we write. Mm-hmm. I think it comes from that same space, and you know, in that way, I think you know, in, intentional or not, it. Uh, uh, I mean, it's intention at the deepest level of, you mm. know, you intended to be in conversation with these people rather than speak above them. Uh, um, and, and that moment changes how you uh, produce knowledge, but I think also how you write. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, no, I think that's true. 
I want to ask you in some ways now, I've asked you about the title, subtitle, and then we haven't even opened the book, although no. you've, you've, you've walked through the book a lot. I wanted to ask you about the cover. Um, yeah. And I don't, you know, most covers are just kind of boring and, you know, or, or there's, you know, some designer at the press, I'm thinking about me, you know, mm-hmm. picks a couple of things, runs some options by you. Um, but I absolutely love the cover of your book. It took me a while to actually open it. I just loved it. I mean, it has this collage of photos. Yes. And then it has butterflies. Yes. Superimposed. And I, I, it's amazing. And so I was like, well, this isn't just a title that was mailed in. Or uh, sorry, a cover that was mailed in. Right. It clearly is a cover that is saying something. And so I just wanted to ask you about it. Thank you so much for asking about it, um, because this was another thing that was a little bit uncomfortable for me, uh, but um, um, because it's a weird, I think it's a really weird cover for an academic book, it's, um, um, y- you know, it's it's a piece of art, um, and I know it's a piece of art because I commissioned it from an artist, <laughs> so, oh, okay. <laughs> um, so... I wanted for the cover of this book, again, for this to feel in every part that I could make it, um, the vitality of the sort of political enterprise, right? The political invention um, and the experimentalism and the boldness that I think I was trying to talk about, right? In the text, I wanted to be reflected in every way and that included the cover. and so. You know, with my first book, absolutely the same process that you talked about happened, right? Like, I was like, I don't know. I just need to get it out. Here are the colors that I would like to, to use. Like, hopefully you'll make something happen. Um, and I didn't really think that much about it, honestly. Um, but this book, I really wanted it to be intentional. And I wanted it to be um, bold and joyful, Um because I think that the movement is bold and joyful amidst um, the um, sorrow, anger, exhaustion that also always com- accompanies multi-generational um, liberation movements, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that are, right, and continue to be ongoing. Um, but I think that when we write about movements, when we write about anti-Blackness, when we write about um, the sort of terrorism of the police state, um, you know, all of these things, we often um, emphasize the sort of heaviness of, you know, the problems that we face, right? And and for good reason. But what um, inspired and moved me most, honestly, about this movement was the kind of um, effervescence and livingness of it. Um, amidst all of that and the intention and attention to joy um, that is that is built into the political philosophy of the movement and also the practices right um, um, that people engage in in movement spaces and um, and the discursive approach um, that I think is really interesting and different right um, the notion of being unapologetic is not just about attitude Right. It's also a part of a um, political refusal to um, approach uh, questions of liberation from a crouch of apology Um, and uh, but also a refusal to um, approach from a posture of um, of never ending 
um, sacrifice and war, right? Uh, and I wanted that to be conveyed. And I and I remember so that so all that that's like kind of long to say. The cover is inspired in two ways. Um, one, what really hit me about wanting to emphasize the joyfulness and livingness um, of this movement and the way it undergirds the 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 discursive approach of the arguments that are made is a chant that I witnessed um, in Chicago at a protest. Um, and the chant is, uh, it's nothing about the police. It's nothing about, um, you know, um, overcoming, right? It's like, like, so it doesn't have these, you know, it's not like, you know, ain't no power, but the power of the people, you know, like all the chants that we made for this chant is, um, I love black people. You don't love black people. What's wrong with you? repeated over and over again in a kind of um, polyrhythmic chant call and response and it and it's just joy like it's like the whole you know what i mean like it um and it's not it's not a it's not a demand it's not a kind of overt uh, sort of assertion of power although the power is demonstrated in the fact of the massing of the people in the streets um and the activities that that accompany and surround that but but this was just a song yeah. of a, of appreciation um and joy and livingness and so that really made a big impression on me and then in addition there's a story that i heard from several different people that i interviewed of the convening in ferguson uh i'm, I'm sorry not the convening the convening after the ferguson uprising in cleveland ohio um and and um you know, that convening took place in 2015. Um, it had a lot of different sort of constituencies of the movement. Um, it was not a smooth convening necessarily. It was large, but people had sort of like fought um, during the different sort of um, factions had fought about the approach and people had wanted to do, this was, you know, right um, after Tamir Rice was killed and people wanted to do an action, but um the folks couldn't agree on what kind of action they wanted to do. So no action was taken and people were upset. And um, there was like an um, internal controversy about, you know, um, um, you know, what it actually meant to center the marginalized and trans voices. And like, so there had been all of this contention, but at the end of the gathering, as folks were leaving, um, there was a black boy who had been detained by the police, right, like um, a block or a couple blocks away so that people would pass, right? People did pass on their way out. And this child, um, you know, was sitting there in handcuffs and um, people started to inquire why had he had been taken and the police told them that he had been um, drinking. And after people persistently inquired, they said, don't worry about it. It was actually his mom who called the police. Um, and, um, and people kept inquiring because that didn't seem right. And the boy was like, it definitely was not my mom. Here's my mom. This is her number. They contacted her. And what happened was that all of these different factions who've been fighting about what the right thing to do was and who they might be and how the moment of Ferguson, right, the Ferguson uprising could be turned into a sustained movement, came together to unarrest this child and return him to his mother, um, which they did. And, um, and, um, Everyone told me. Now it sounds like an apocryphal story, but I heard this from many people uh-huh. that when um, 
when they had gotten the police to release the child to his mother's um, custody and the child and his mother were walking toward the car that would take them um, away, right, home, um, that the people who were there, and there were like about five or 600 people there, um, sort of created a corridor for them to sort of walk through and they were shouting love and affirmations at them. Um, And um, they saw um, butterflies, um, like randomly. So this is like, you know, I mean, it is spring, so it was spring, um, but like spring in Ohio. And they saw butterflies um, that were sort of flying around and seemed to be accompanying these two on their walk. And, um, and it was interesting because it also coincided that was right after the release of Kendrick Lamar's album to pimp a butterfly. And people started like, like um, sort of burst into the chorus of the song. All right. Right. Um, um, During that time. So, so this scene was described to me many different times and it was the scene in which um, the possibility of a movement with organizations that were, um, coordinating their activity became possible because it wasn't clear that it was possible after the convening, but it had to happen in this moment um, that had that was made of 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 joy and magic. Wow, that's like <laughs> that is a serious story. I mean, it's like real tears <laughs> listening to that story. It's really, it's really beautiful. And you know, when I saw the butterflies, you know, my first thought was, of course, Kendrick Lamar's album and and the the role that All Right played and the album played in in this particular political moment. But that that concrete, you know, corridor affirmation, love, butterflies appear. Um, it would make a terrible movie, but a perfect human moment. You know, it's like. <laughs> yes. it's, it's, it's uh that's really amazing. Well, wow, I'm really glad I asked about the the <laughs> cover. I mean, I do think I mean a number of things in what you said and things that I would cover. Um, you know, the the right wing has of course, you know, spent years trying to demonize the Black Lives Matter movement and um their focus you know is always on, you know, a, you know, broken windows. Mhm. Yeah. Um, but I, it, I've always suspected, I'll be honest, I'm suspected. I know in my heart that the thing that I do think was most viscerally unacceptable was black pleasure, mm-hmm. black, black happiness expressed in a group. I mean, because, you know, that's it's evasive in the sense of it makes it hard to demonize a protest when people have joy. Mm-hmm. Right? But also, of course you know, one of the foundation stones of anti-blackness is, is a resistance to black happiness. And so when I saw the cover, I thought, you know, that, and hearing this story, I'm like, okay, it's much more expansive and amazing than even my, that intuition. But I also thought about the photographs, the photograph of the, the women on the front mm-hmm. in the way that, you know, as you talked about monument and process and, and trying to work process against monumentalization, you know, in ways that I think a lot of media was trying to honor the Black Lives Matter movement, in creating icons and creating these photographs that are perfectly lit of you know really gorgeous organizers, mm-hmm. who are, you know, or I mean, it's they're professional photographs and perfectly done. It risks monumentalization. 
right? mm-hmm. um, in ways that, you know, and that's, that's nothing to do with the organizers, right? It's just simply, I think, the way the media always wants to monumentalize, but the vulnerability that comes with that. Mm-hmm. But that photograph, you know, is, is, is regular folks doing work to liberate and that's mm-hmm. and it and it's just there I don't know quite what the word is because it's I don't want to say modest photographs, but they have a, a kind of vernacular or everyday photography. But that's because them they are make, exactly. And that's what makes that process, right? Yeah. It, like, like these are everyday photographs. And so it's a reminder of like this isn't a monumental movement or monumentalizable mm-hmm. movement. It's a process movement mm-hmm. of people, right? Of With people. butterflies. Yeah. Well, the artist, Key Williams, um, who is also. Yeah, I was going to ask, I was going to ask the name. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Key who is fantastic and brilliant um, in a variety of different ways. Um, Also um, a a historian um, of New York uh, and, um, and a a person who is very sort of dynamic uh, in terms of, um, you know, uh, uh, liberation movements and progressive movements um, in general is also an artist who um, whose art I admired sort of throughout the time that I was doing the research. And um, I approached Key and I was like, will you do the cover for this book? And that process was also really interesting because at first Key gave me a very like modest um, cover that was um, more similar to my first book cover, much plainer, um, and without the embellishments of like flowers and and fauna and things that I actually quite liked in their collage work, um, uh, and that made me approach them. and And I was like, Key, I want you to go all out. I want to see sort of your full vision. I want the colors to be you know, bright and insane. I want, I, I, I'm inspired by the butterfly stories and I hope that you incorporate them in some way. And he came up with this collage um, of pictures um, of people because he was there right in Cleveland um, of pictures of snapshots, basically um, of people um, that were taken there in Cleveland and created this piece. And I just, um, I just loved it because I do, I, I do think that it shows the sort of like ordinary process part of it. And for me, that is where the hope um, that I think is in this book, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, to absolutely, that's where it comes from um, is, is ordinary people doing this work and transforming in the service of this work. Right. As Mary, as Mary Hook says, right. It's, because that is what is important. Um, you know, in order to sort of live in the world that radical Black feminist pragmatism could make, right, a world in which politics is centered around the notion of um, distributing responsibilities for care um, and distributing responsibilities for care with special attention to um, those who are um, marginalized and suffering within the systems that are currently in use. Like in order to sort of live in that world, we also have to be different subjects than we are now. But the process of, um, of, developing the kind of subjectivity which would allow us to ask questions in a different way and to um, come up with possibilities for action that are different than the ones that have characterized 
you know, that characterize the 20th century, we also have to become different. Uh, but that's not a miraculous thing, right? It's not that you wake up different. It's not a, a kind of um, metamorphosis in that sense. Instead, it is really, you know, as Mary Hook says, being transformed in the service of the work. It is another process. It is a thing that happens step by step and day by day and interaction by interaction. Um, um, you know, and through the work of organizing. And so I wanted the cover to kind of show that and show um, the joyful side of that. Um, of course, there's a ton of slog and um, um, just quotidian dullness in addition to, um, in addition to the, the, the moments of, of real, like, you know, danger and um, um, repression and, and things that also happen. But yeah, I wanted to emphasize this joyful part of it, this sort of, uh, these moments of alchemy. Uh, yeah, I'm, I, I'm again. I'm just so glad I asked because it's a cover that struck me as enormously important, and so, and I'm glad we get the artist's name out there. I'll make sure to put a link in the uh, the narrative of the podcast um, to to his work. So you use a phrase and started to unpack it a little bit, but you know, this this phrase. Uh, I don't know if you want to call it a phrase or like a, a critical frame or analytical frame of radical black feminist pragmatism. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you to sort of walk through that phrase a little bit. I mean, you, you sort of, you know, gave an encapsulation of it uh, just now, but it's such an important phrase. It does so much work across the book. Mm -hmm. And um, I think in addition to all the things we've already talked about, it's one of the real wide contributions for readers, real wide contributions to thinking mm. politically. Right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I just want to ask you about the phrase radical black feminist pragmatism. How does it fit together, but also why these particular terms? Yes, <laughs> this was this was another part that was hard um, um, because I didn't know. So so radical black feminist pragmatism, I should say, is is just the name that I call the political philosophy that I encountered. This is not my political philosophy. Um, I did not, I did not dream it up. I couldn't have, I am, I am less, you know, um, I am, I, I was trained in a much more sort of cognitive and much less emotional, um, and, uh, sort of attention to notions of care, right? Like none of that was part of my training. And so, um, so I kept encountering this and I had to try to figure out what I wanted to call it, like this thing that was happening. And so, you know, I, e each sort of part of the term does its own work in trying to describe um, the values that I think are encapsulated. The radical, you know, part of it is a, um, a mode of inquiry, right? So I really wanted to think about radical, because I think that the movement thinks about um, radicalism less as a um, series of positions, right? Like, so it's not really about positions at the edge of, um, you know, accepted discourse or something like that. That's not what radical means. Um, radical really is about asking questions that get at the radix or root of the phenomena that is being witnessed, right? So it means getting beyond the terms of the given, right? Um, and, and understanding that in order to um, address um, multi-generational problems, um, and problems that have been, you know, um, sort of worked over again and again uh, within, you know, 
the modern the the paradigm of modernity um, that we actually have to um, get underneath or beside or around the terms of the given because they're not going to get us where we need to go. Yeah. Um, and black feminism is um, an ethic, right? Um, so we have this radical mode of inquiry, but then grounding this mode of inquiry is also this um, sort of, um, you know, this ethic um, of uh, which is a constellation of, of, of approaches and values that's encapsulated in um, the political tradition of black feminism. Yeah. And these include a focus on um, lived experience, right. Um, in terms of as a basis of the epistemology of, of how we conceive of political problems um, and what things are shared and how they're shared and, and why they're significant. Um, also a way of reasoning that um, uh, is margin to center, right? Um, that tries to think about um, people who are most impacted by oppressive arrangements of power and privilege. Um, on the logic that um, that is the only way to actually see um, not only the, the full damage of those systems, but also to begin to un unravel them, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> because in order to sort of like, un to loose a knot, right? You have to tug at the right place. Otherwise you yeah. just make it more entrenched and entwined and, and, and more difficult to disentangle. So, um, you know, there's a particular logic there that is also at work. Um, and then also with the emphasis on um, care as political, right? As not only a kind of ethic, as not only a fact of um, labor and laboring, which a lot of feminist theory talks about it as, but as an actual uh, way of organizing um, politics and political thought. Right. Um, and then um, the pragmatism part of it, I thought would be the most um, controversial, at least for people in movement, because they many times people people react poorly to the notion of pragmatism because um, it's thought of colloquially um, and in yeah. relation to kind yeah. of like democratic triangulation or um, the limit of possibilities. But I really meant it in terms of philosophical pragmatism. Um, which is, um, you know, a, a way of um, thought toward action, basically, uh, that emphasizes um, meaning, how meanings are created within collectivities, how meanings um, fund and are reflected in collective action, the importance of iterations, right, um, the um, the uh, the lack of teleology <laughs> and the importance of contingency, um, you know. So so those kinds of things that I felt were also really reflected in the um, the political philosophy, and I thought each one of these elements was really important in characterizing um, the more detailed framework that I, I then lay out. Yeah, I'm I, you know I'm glad you spoke directly to that to that word pragmatism, uh, because I wondered about that, you know, just seeing the phrase, mm -hmm. I wondered how, you know, you know, how you were going to nuance that. And, and I think that's really uh, nicely put because it does have mm -hmm. that everyday usage and the suspicions that come with it about being, you know, about compromise or middle ground, or mm -hmm. this sort of, you know, the sort of 
you know, media political discourse around that, but it clearly, it cannot be attached to radical black and feminist Mm -hmm. without, without either being a different sense of pragmatism, which you just articulated, but also what you also just articulated is the way that idea of pragmatism, because it's at the end of the phrase is fundamentally modified by radical black and feminist, Mm -hmm. right? Those are, you know, adverbs that really Mm -hmm. change the resonance of it. Um, So I I love the phrase and I, I have to say, I'm, you know, I don't work in the pragmatist tradition, but if, if this contributes to to a revitalization of, of that term as a way of thinking rather than a, a way of selling out radicalism, yeah. uh, that would be really great because, you know, part of all that stuff you were talking about in, in explicating the black and the feminist uh, as an ethic and politics, right, it it changes that meaning of pragmatism in ways that I think you make really productive and makes the term really productive for, for those of us thinking in slightly different registers, perhaps about politics, because it's a key term, right? Pragmatism is like, it's a movement. It's, Mm -hmm. and it's really just been corrupted. And I I was glad to see it get, get sort of pulled off the, uh, I don't know. I don't want to say the, the, you know, the, pulled off the skepticism pile, right? People are so skeptical about it. <laughs> right. No. And it's, it's okay. I think it's okay to be skeptical about it. Um, because the sense in which I want to use it is, um, it is, a, <coughs> it's about world build, building. So it's yeah. a little bit, um, I do have to say that it's a little bit, um, sort of writing against utopia, um, you know, it's trying to write for imagination, but against utopia in a, cer- a, a certain way. Um, and I don't mean that as a hard line, because some people talk about utopian se- thinking in a very similar way that I mean pragmatic sure. imagination. Yeah. But um, but I wanted to make it clear that, um, you know, th- that this movement didn't have a notion of like um, uh, inevitable transformation or... Um, of revelatory transformation, right? That like people will wake up to uh, something and then everything will be different or, um, um, you know, instead I really wanted to emphasize that, that quality of world building of how do we make a bridge, right? Make the steps from this world to the one that we're imagining, but also, and this is important for the pragmatism part, also with the understanding that there's not a there that we get to. Right. Uh, uh-huh. You know, that that there's not a, a sort of equilibrium steady state um, yeah. that we get to. But instead, it is that we walk in the liberatory process. Right. That we're always in this process of getting free um, um, and that that's that's just the way it is. Right. Uh, and I think that that is something that is characteristic of the pragmatist tradition, um, which is to say that we don't get we don't arrive at a perfect place. Right. Um, um, And that's not the goal. Right. The goal is to sort of walk in the process of liberation, to walk in the process of getting free and to trust ourselves and each other to continue to adapt and experiment and refine and revise and get it wrong and then do better. I love that. That's 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 fantastic. Um, And thinking about, you know, think about pragmatism, imagination and this sort of different movement, right, of like what a future is, what accomplishment is. How do, um, and you've spoken a little bit to this, but just to sort of center on this, how do you see uh, 
this ethic of, of, of care, this politics of care mm-hmm. and healing functioning in this, because it's, it's that your treatment of, of care and healing in the third chapter is, mm-hmm. was for me, maybe my favorite part of the book. I, I thought it was, it rehabilitated the idea of care and healing as you did pragmatism from this thing that people are very skeptical about, about care and healing are about the interpersonal rather than the, yeah. political, you know, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. But you, you don't do that, right? You, you absolutely enmesh that in, obviously, political movement, but also what this pragmatic imagination is, what this radical imagination is, what this black feminist imagination is. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to sort of ask you, you know, what, what drew you to that characterization of, of care and healing, not just as a thing to talk about, but as something to really pull together the sensibilities of the movement? I mean, it's because of what I found. Right? Like, so yeah, yeah. Again, it was like through um, talking to people and, um, you know, being with people in their spaces was, um, it was just something that people talked about all the time, yeah. <laughs> you, you know? Okay. Um, and then it was Great. also it. really dominant in the discourse that I was seeing online, right? Um, you know, as well, it, it was just... Um, you know, so I had to kind of figure it out again, like my training is not here. Like this is not, these are not categories that I normally uh-huh. really understand or even hold to be valuable, right? Like, in, like in, in previous, you know, in my previous sort of life uh, as, you know, a, a political scientist, because these are not things that are actually really valued, right? Um, when we think about, um, you know, liberal politics, and indeed, uh, and I mean liberal in, in terms of um, philosophically liberal, right? Sure. Um, in terms of liberalism, right? Emotion and um, um, and its correlates are de-emphasized, right? Mm-hmm. As unimportant, as not what makes the human being special, as not what contributes to um, a well-run polity, right? Um, uh-huh. Those things are really de-emphasized and thought of as not serious. And so the fact that I was encountering them in movement spaces as so central and Mm -hmm. so serious, you know, made me think about it Um, and made me really want to dig in and investigate what kind of political function that it was having, because it was clear from the very beginning that it was not mere sentiment, right? It really was not people, um, um, you know, in a more kind of romantic um, and, and I mean, that's like historically, right, like philosophically, like romantic notion of care, but really it was a way that people tried to think through how to um, come together in organizations, how to organize politics, how to think about um, um the sustainability and longevity of movement itself. Like it was just such a backbone of thinking um, Mm -hmm. and action uh, that I really had to try to investigate it. And as I sort of found that this actual framework of um, care politics that is in um, the Black Lives Matter movement is, uh, comes from disability justice, right? It comes from Uh, disability uh justice movement. And, um, you know, in in that way, it's also quite practical. <laughs> so, yeah. and, and that always um, is really resonant with me, right? And and so it's really thinking about if we make if we want to make a politics in which many fewer people suffer and in which justice is possible, then mm-hmm. we have to think about people as not only free floating cognition, uh-huh. but embodied. Um, 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 
you know, embodied um, and living uh, creatures of reason. Yeah. <laughs> which, which means that we have to have a really different sense of what politics is for. And, you know, um, feminist political theory talks a lot about um, care. You know, there are those traditions. And then I, I also pull from the work of Joan Tronto, who talks about care um, as a kind of democratic ethic um, that um, ought to organize politics. But it's really Black feminism that takes me to an understanding of care um, as a um, main operative framework for how to think about um, political significance, political judgment, and political action, right, mm-hmm. through this, um, um, you know, through this lens of um, who's suffering and how to um, alleviate that suffering, not on an, an interpersonal or not only or mere, primarily on an interpersonal basis, uh-huh. um, but systemically, right? Like that is the thing that should be the anchor of our politics, right? Um, and that's a really different way of thinking about politics. Um, Absolutely. Than the 20th century philosophies. And it really makes, I mean, it, it's an interesting hearing you talk about this uh, and having uh, retold this story about the, you know, the corridor of, of yeah. activists mm-hmm. and the, the child and mother walking through, right? I mean, I don't know how to put it other than it sounds sort of flat, but, you know, what happened to this child and this mother is like so deeply traumatic. And so the care and healing of this mm-hmm. like corridor with a huge assist from the, from the butterflies, it's like mm-hmm. it can be teary just thinking mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting to also see that as like in a, 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 a political action. Right. And right. the way it's not a sort of here are two people who need a little support and then we'll go do politics. But instead, we're doing politics here and in this this you know, radical black feminist pragmatism. Right. Absolutely. Um, because it wasn't only about the assistance of those two people. Right. Because also yeah. in that moment was the codification of a way of working together and a mm-hmm. clarification of the goals and a um, clarification of how actions should be chosen, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Sort of not, um, you know, um, merely or primarily on a kind of abstract level in terms Mm -hmm. of like, what level of of action are you ready for? I mean, that is a question that is is asked in spaces, right? Like what level of direct action are you, um, you know, willing to engage in, right? Like, but not merely from that perspective of what are you ready for, but really from the question of, practical necessity right right the the goal the goal here is to return this boy to take him from um a state which seeks to harm and destroy him and return him to the loving arms of his community that's Mm -hmm. the goal that's the whole thing right and so all of our and and to understand that um in a really you know practical and and way like an empirical way right here it is right here like this is the thing we have to do um and we have to do that even while we fight and even while we're sniping at each other and even while some of us are more militant than others and we are at different life stages and we have different sort of identity expressions like you know with all of those differences and all of that plurality happening all the time right Uh um this is a very concrete anchor yeah um on which to help us understand 
um, the purpose and significance of our action uh, and its cause, right? Like, so, so, yeah. So, so, so I just think that it, it, it was very, very important. It also sort of turns the, um, this approach also kind of is quite appealing, I think, to the larger polity, right? Um, Because the care emphasis, I think, is part of what made the movement so popular, right? So popular for a social movement. You know, I don't think it's any kind of um, um, coincidence or mystery about why um, the circulation of the Audre Lorde quote about self-care, which was really just like, it it wasn't meant to be like a viral, like, um, sort of... um, uh, um, revolutionary like cultural moment, right? It wasn't meant to sort of like necessarily be in, injected into and then um, be immediately sort of grasped and co-opted by, of course, the capitalist system. Um, but um, but but it, the reason that it was is that it was so resonant, yeah. right? Because yeah. our notion of um, politics, but also just life, right, um, had been made to feel void of any room for care, right? The sort of political economy that we live in is one that demands work all the time in order to survive. Um, and we are not meant to put anything above or before um, our work. And many of us you know, up and down, right, except at the very, very tip top of of income um, distribution, find that we don't have time to care for ourselves or each other, Um, let alone the polity, right? That's the other thing is that democracy is actually an extremely demanding form of political organization and one that requires care. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And we're living in a context in which care had been almost totally devalued um, in every kind of way, like every kind of way that you could um, imagine. Right. Like materially, discursively, in terms of institutions and structures of support, but also ideologically. Right. Like um, um, associated with um people who are unserious, um, people who um, uh, can't or don't reason, people who are soft, right? Um, the feminine, right? Like, so uh, really boldly putting that at the forefront of, uh, of politics, I think was surprising to a lot of people and also connected to a lot of people, um, even if they weren't necessarily um you know, fully versed in the impacts of white supremacy and structural racism on so many domains of American life. But just this notion um, that people can matter and that we need to say that um, and that people um, and our politics should be organized around the fact that people matter, I think was quite powerful. I think it's powerful and, and, you know, having read the book and then hearing you talk about it also that I think there's a real question about the, I, I mean, the durability of multiplicities, you know, anchoring themselves in some meta ideological commitment. Mm-hmm. I mean, the stability of that is, is I think always it's, it's, it's flimsy. It's, it's a, it's a, long odds bet but mm-hmm. the existential dimensions of of care 
you know, because we all need to be cared for. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't want to sound, you know, sentimental, except that it, you know, care matters in ways that anchor us. And so it is so interesting to think about it as an anchor to a movement, mm-hmm. right. Rather than a feature of a movement. Mm-hmm. And that, that is, you know, a deep sense of ideology that is, is both capable of that weight of an anchor, but also, um, uh, something that we don't let go of right mm-hmm. uh, it's not flighty it's not ephemeral at all it's incarnate you mm-hmm. know it's it's um and it requires you know personal and polity work right it mm-hmm. requires these multiple levels of work so i really love that i mean i you know like i said it was it was my favorite chapter in the book um in large part because I, I think like like care and healing are important, but the way they've been marginalized as not radical mm-hmm. has always seemed to me to to be you know just to be blunt like really masculinist kind of lone wolf, you know you know young man willing to punch Nazis and you know that that sort of ethic which mm-hmm. is not not unimportant in in movements, mm-hmm. but the way it marginalized this thing that is such an anchor to us at every phase of our lives right mm-hmm. from from birth to death. Um, it adds an existential dimension to to your broader sort of political claims, I think. Mm-hmm. But as you keep coming back to, this is an inductive moment, right, for mm-hmm. you. This is not, you know, Professor Woodley coming to yeah. the masses and giving them an idea, right? It's reading their conversations, right? You're- or even just flat out listening, even maybe not even uh, reading. Well, both, right? All of that. And what's also really important about care and healing justice is that, you know, as it comes, you know, from disability justice, this notion of healing is not just about personal healing. And the notion of care is also not just about personal care. And I agree with you about the existential dimensions. But what's nice about this concept of care is that it goes, it traverses every dimension from the practical, the very much practical and quotidian literal care, right, Mm -hmm. Um, to this existential kind of um, notion that is captured in the name of the movement, which is like, how do we matter? Do we matter? Can we claim that? And what does it mean Mm -hmm. to claim that? And what actions does it demand of us? So it, it has all these layers, but also from the disability justice standpoint, healing justice is really important because the 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 notion is that we cannot heal by ourselves. Yeah. Right? Is that especially if what ails us are structural conditions, then a part of our healing is moving to alter those conditions, to uh, alleviate the causes of our suffering. It politicizes institutions, which is, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. which is that, as you uh, previously talked about, is such a key part of of the sub, I mean, it's, it's the subtitle, right? The politicization yeah. <laughs> of, yeah. of, of, of institutions coming mm-hmm. through care and healing. I, I think that's, this is just so incredibly important. And, um, you know, the fact that you, you draw from these multiple sources and disability justice, you know, activists and scholars, um, the more they become a part of how we talk about these things, the better. I mean, your book, I think, is a great embodiment of that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you, um, go from this, uh, you know, existential institutional care and healing to uh, maybe kind of a, a bookish question or navel gazy qu- uh, invitation <laughs> from you. But okay. I wanted to ask you about, you know, how you think about this book in relationship 
to your first book, The Politics yeah. of Common Sense. So mm-hmm. I really love The Politics of Common Sense. You know, you and I met at a, at a symposium in, at UCLA. Okay. You, gave a, you gave a talk. I really liked your talk. So I ordered the book from my hotel room. It was there when I got home. I read it and I really loved it. And what I loved about it, it really did change the way I think about um, uh, political language, right? Because mm-hmm. it's about dis- about the discursive discourse. dimensions of politics and mm-hmm. how discourse carries beyond the sort of successes and failures of movements in the moment is mm-hmm. able to keep them circulating. You know, same-sex marriage mm-hmm. uh, to me was one of the, the most compelling examples of that. And this is a very different book because it's not about discourse, right? Mm. It's 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 about care and healing and all of these ways you're talking about anchoring and in the the broadest, most expansive sense of radical black feminist pragmatism. Mm-hmm. So how do you see the relationship between the books? And if the answer is they're just two different books and they're two different parts of me, that's a very simple answer. But I also know that books change us as we mm-hmm. write them. And so they often like address our own uh, sensibilities and developments as thinkers? Well, I mean, for me, the books are quite, quite related. I mean, obviously they're very different, but, um, both of these books are attempts to understand the process of meaning making, because I think that meaning making is our most fundamental human process, but also our most fundamental political process. And in political science, we don't pay attention to it very much. (laughs) even though it defines the horizons of possibility, right? Uh, And so for me, each of these books is a different way of trying to get at that meaning-making process and what's political about it and how it shapes the horizons of possibility in, you know, on different topics and in different moments of political time. So let me ask you another uh, book question, um, and this is about you know this this is a book that comes you know is is published. I mean, it's written across many years, and mm-hmm, yeah, um, but it's it's written at a uh, it's published I should say at a moment in which uh, Black Lives Matter and the movement for Black Lives is you know been a part of our of our political and for those of us who, who are writers and thinkers, part of our intellectual life now for a decent number of years. Yeah. Almost and a decade. So it's kind of crazy to think about that. Mm-hmm. That's a decade that flew by, but then what was happening <laughs> 10 years ago is, you know, just so different. Um, but anyway, but of course that also means that there are multiple other books that have come out rather than mm-hmm. memoirs, sure. uh, manifestos, uh, on the movements, uh, or I'm thinking also of, of academic academics treating, I shouldn't say academic treatments, but academics treating the, the same mm-hmm. movement. I'm thinking of, of Kianga's book, which mm-hmm. was, you know, I think one of the first academic books to to come out on, on Black Lives Matter and Chris mm-hmm. LeBron's book. And so I want to ask you about how you understand your book in relationship to that sort of, I, I would say, like an emerging writerly world, scholarship, writerly world about Black Lives Matter and the movement for Black Lives. And we, you and I have talked about this previously. I don't mean that in like, why is your book better than all oh, these no, yeah. But really, what do you see as, uh, what do you see your book opening up that other books have touched on or, or, or not quite gotten to? Like, what is, what is, what is the important thing opened up for your book in relationship to, to this emerging scholarly treatment? Well, I think that my book is, um, 
I think that what I wanted to do with this book and that I hope I did was to start the book in the movement, right? Um, and, and indeed to, to leave it there <laughs> and to um, sort of um, try to understand what um, the movement is, is based in, what it's trying to do, um, and how it contributes to uh, our understandings of politics, democracy, and possibility. Um, but I wasn't, I didn't, so, so I wanted it to be an explication of the movement, um, from accounts, right, um, inside the movement and less, um, a prescription for what the movement should do or a, um, um, a meditation on the movement's relationship to, um, other aspects of black political thought. Right. Um, so um, I think all of that work is amazing. And the, also the memoirs that are the first person accounts that have come out, um, people who, you know, the f- political philosophers in the movement. Right. Like um, like, you know, Adrian Marie Brown, who, you know, um, and Alexis Pauline Gums. Right. Who are writing about, you know, the ways that they're thinking about politics and strategy and care. Right. Like all of that. Um, should be, you know, is happening and should be happening. And I hope that there's only more proliferation, but I wanted to create, I wanted to write something that was empirical um, in that it was based on, um, you know, what people were telling me, but also had, um, you know, um, a real commitment to understanding how those findings should affect the rest of what we understand about politics, right? And I think that that is, um, you know, I, I think that that's um, relatively unique and, you know, it's not something that everybody is going to like, right? Like this is not a book um, that's really about political refusal, right? Um, you know, um, in, in a way that annoys like many um some inter interlocutors that I have had, um, you know, and this is not a book that is, um, only located in, um, um, uh, political theory or black studies, um, which also sometimes annoys people. Uh It is also not a book that is entirely, you know, it's not, it doesn't have any regressions in it at all. Right. (laughs) Like, um, so, Uh um, that also annoys some people. And instead it's a kind of, um, melange that tries to tell an empirical story in a, in a theoretical context Uh that's meant to reorient, um, us, around what we think social movements do mm-hmm. um and it's meant to influence the epistemology of politics as we understand it um, as a discipline but also as a vocation that's great and you know i i think about the books that are emerging and you know as as always happens when uh, multiple books emerge around a, a a political issue or, you know, some sort of event of some kind or scholarship moment. Um, there is such a tendency to, to sort of constrain proliferation, but, you know, I, I just, my hope is that, you know, we just keep getting more books that pick up different aspects of this because I think, you know, one of the things that your book and others, other books do is to re- serve as reminders 
to us as scholars and, and, and people existing in, in, in the world and everything in between um, reminds us that this is a movement on par with, you know, the civil rights movement, with reconstruction, you know, with abolition. And so, you know, no one ever says like, we need fewer books on, you know, the civil rights movement, or it needs to only be this, or, you know, I, I think it's, it's, I just hope that in this moment, as we're sort of writing history in the present, um, and doing, you know, taking account of the present, that, that ethic of proliferation and, and multiple aspects and, and healthy debates and distinctions, you know, as you say, certain interlocutors, you know, resist this or that. Um, I, you know, I, I think your book does a really good job of, of being a challenge to whatever different views there are. And I hope that takes a place of, uh, takes up place of, uh, of conversation and debate about the ultimate meanings of this moment. Well, and I think that they should be debated and acted upon forever. I mean, I don't think, um, you know, I would, I would go even further. I mean, what I try to do in thinking and talking about the political philosophy of this movement and really talking about black feminism, um, you know, and radicality and pragmatism in this way is that I really think that it's even more than just this movement is on par with other kinds of black liberation movements that have taken place. I think that the political philosophy is important because it also, um, uh, allows us a glimpse and a path forward, um, Mm -hmm. Um, in a way that exceeds the political philosophies that characterize the 20th century. So for me, I, it's much bigger than that. And there should be proliferation, not only because it's like good, you know, in terms of like intellectual interchange and worthy, these are worthy topics, but there should be proliferation because in order for um, radical black feminist pragmatism and a politics of care to be a politics that can actually characterize and shape um, mm-hmm. the activity, right, of the 21st century, um, there has to be prol- proliferation. There has to be saturation of thought about this. We have to have, um, you know, disagreements. There have to be camps, right? You know, yeah. um, there's not only one big book on liberalism, right? There are thousands <laughs> yeah. of books on it and people sort themselves into camps about it and they reinterpret again and again, right? Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. different, you know, um, that's because that's what it means to be a paradigmatic you know, frame of thought. Yeah. And um, I believe this can be a paradigmatic frame of thought and should be. And that's why, you know, if I can just be um, disciplinary about it, I think that's why this is important for political scientists to take seriously. Because I think that's a lot of what you're talking about is this sort of disciplinary expertise of political science that I think really comes out in the book, especially because your political science approach is inductive and empirical. Mm-hmm. So books get published, right? They go out there, people read them, um, you know, which is wonderful and often anxiety producing. <laughs> yes. Um, and, uh, you know, what readers take away from it? I mean, you've, or, you've already talked to this a bit, uh, talked about this a bit. What readers take from the book is is sort of, you know, their own their own uh, adventure, right? As readers, yeah. mm-hmm. but also as authors, we do have an idea of you know what we hope, right? It was put it in a non imperial sense. It's not what we demand, no. but what we, what we hope people take away from the book, how they walk away from it, what sort of the ways their sensibilities are changed, and. What do you think 
as the author, what do you hope uh, is the sensibility transformation that happens for us as readers of your book? Well, I think that what I hope most of all is that I hope readers walk away from the book thinking what I thought as I was encountering the movement, which is that um, it makes people understand um, the mechanics of political possibility. Mm -hmm. And it makes people understand themselves as um, um, a people in a political time, right? A political set of generations that are as much capable and responsible of shaping the world Mm -hmm. as any other people in any other political time. Um, Part of what I'm really aiming toward and writing for is, um, you know, a feeling of, and part of the reason why I don't, um, why I try to avoid expressing like sort of fealty to any one ideological train of thought from the 20th century is because I really wanted to emphasize what I felt um, from speaking to people in movement spaces and being able to be uh, a guest, right. Uh, You know, in those spaces Mm -hmm. was, um, was this understanding of the, the livingness of this political moment Uh um, and the sense that you don't have to take sides in the um, 20th century debates and we don't have to, um, um, and that we we should be actually trying to exceed those things, that we should be Mm -hmm. able to depart, right? As, as, you know, Audre Lorde says, from the shoreline, right? Of of Mm -hmm. modernity and set sail for a new era and that we can do that. And indeed it's our responsibility to do that. And um, this is a way forward. So that's what I want people to take from it. Um, Not to say that I've gotten uh, everything right and it's uh, all their particulars or to say that my tone is exactly what people will appreciate or to, you know, like it's it's not a perfect book, but I do want it to convey. And what I want people to really take away from it is this, um, understanding of uh, possibility and the necessity of embracing that possibility in really um, radical and practical ways. And what about you? I mean, we as writers enter books <laughs> and exit books to different people. Yeah. How, is your sense, how have your sensibilities been changed in the process of writing the book? Um. They've been so changed. I think that's part of why it was so hard to write. As I said, really thinking through the implications of care and taking it seriously, mm-hmm. really thinking about embodied existence and taking it seriously, really thinking about the ways that, um, you know, joy and pleasure are um, necessary, not only personally, but as um, social and political resources. Um you know, all of those things were things that um, I didn't, I hadn't focused on before, not only in my scholarship, but I also think like as a person, you know, I, I've huh. been very, um, I'm very cognitively centered, right, um, in a very kind of masculinist and Western <laughs> way, right, like sort of my training. Um, um, and, um, 
And so for me, this book opened up a different kind of depth um, and emphasis, I think, in my own life, but also in my own um, politics that won't change. Also, the book made me an abolitionist. I wasn't when I started writing it, <laughs> which was a big change. That's so no small thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, and the way that I came to it, again, like the way that I came to it is not you know, was really through data and, um, and, you know, the examinations that I was, I had to undergo because of the things that people were telling me, um, and the ways that they were proposing to shape policy. Um, and, you know, in thinking through, um, you know, what came to be, what came to me to seem, um, the most sort of um, most sensical, <laughs> right, uh-huh. sort of political stance. Um, um, it also made me consider um, the ways, right, like what are the viewpoints through which an abolitionist politics makes sense? And it's it's there's one way to get to it through data. I mean, and I think that that's the way that I approached it in the first place, because as I said, like, that's how, that's how I'm keyed, you know, I'm just, I was going to say that would be the cerebral part. Yeah, like, like that, That's the kind of way that I'm keyed. I'm just like, Oh, like all of these, you know, all of this money is being spent. Um, we actually don't have very good data, which always makes me very suspicious. The data that we have says that none of these approaches actually do the thing that they're meant to do. Um, that, that, keys up Foucault for me, which means that 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 means that the system is doing a thing um, other than what it purports to be wanting to do. Um, And also we have all this empirical evidence about the things that actually do um, um, what policing is supposed to do and never has and doesn't Mm -hmm. while also creating all of this harm. So there is a way there through that. And that's actually the way that I got there. But then once that you get there, it's also when you're thinking and talking about harm instead of crime, then you have to also start thinking about care. And as you're thinking about care, you also are starting to think about pleasure. And not only that, you're also trying to start thinking about things like, um, you know, when you start thinking about safety, you also start thinking about things like well-being and flourishing, right? Like, so, um, so, so I kind of backed into, (laughs) <laughs> backed into those concepts um Amazing. you know relatively reluctantly and unwillingly but there was there was nothing i could do to avoid them because in order to understand the subject that i had set for myself i had to be as they say transformed in the service of the work i love that i'm so glad i asked um so I really, I appreciate so much you taking all this time to talk about your book. I mean, I really, I think it's such an important book. It's super interesting, really, really vital for for all of us who care about the the question of racial justice, um, you know, and, and critique of the state and uh, and democracy. You know, for mm-hmm. what it's worth, uh, you know, whatever. <laughs> whatever uh content is in it uh i did not i've never liked the word democracy but it's a book that made me think uh, a lot more about the word democracy a lot more sympathetically and and so you know i love the book but you know hearing you talk about it has just been uh it's been wonderful it's it adds so much texture 
to the book that is already itself very textured. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk. It was really Thank you great. for inviting me. It was really wonderful to talk about these processes. <laughs> it's a part that, that, you know, usually you don't get to talk about. So it's, it's actually been a fantastic experience. Great. Well, um, when your next book comes out, we'll meet again in a podcast. <laughs> All right. All right. We'll take care. Thank you. You too, John. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.